In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We uh, got back from South Africa yesterday, uh, Alan, myself, and Deacon Bob, and so uh, not only didn't I really have time to write one of my normal kinds of sermons, but it seemed kind of inappropriate to come back and not say something about that rather than just sort of, you know, write or perform a homily about the lesson. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we, what we saw, what we learned, and make, have some very rough connection to the gospel, <laughs> the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, we went to uh, two, two distinct areas of uh, South Africa. In the Cape Town, there's an Eastern Cape and the Western Cape. I want to tell you a little bit about our brethren in the Eastern Cape. Uh, they are a, a community of, of Christians from the Kosa tribe. Um, you should all know, incidentally, that all of our, our South African church doesn't look very much like us. We have a small uh, presence of sort of white suburban Anglicans, but most of them are, uh, are um, either blacks or what they call uh, uh, colored or mixed in some way and living in, and most of our churches are in townships, which are very poor areas. So it's, it's, it looks, uh, the Anglican Catholic Church in South Africa looks a lot different than it does in Newport Beach. Just want to, <laughs> I just don't want to. So, so the 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 Kosa uh, brethren in the Eastern Cape are part of something that is called the Umzi Wazi Tiopia. And what that is, we learned, was that somewhere around 1900, there was a man whose last name was Duani, who was a Methodist uh, minister of sorts, uh, who had a large following among the Kosa tribe. And he became interested in, in his own study and search of, of being, being come a part of a church that had apostolic orders, had apostolic succession. He, he migrated from the Methodist to the African Methodist Episcopal, but eventually brought his group into, it was accepted by the Church of the Province of South Africa, which is the Anglican Church in South Africa. And he had uh, apparently you know, several hundred thousand followers, so his coming into it was a fairly significant event, and they were called the Order of Ethiopia. Um, we learned uh, not because they were Ethiopian, but Ethiopia there is a general um, reference to sort of African tradition uh, based on the line in the Psalms that the Ethiopians will stretch out their hands unto God. I believe it's Psalm 68. And your prayer book, uh, actually, as I learned something, it says the Morians will stretch out their hand. Those are Ethiopians, just in case you uh, don't have another translation at, your hand, at hand. So um, so they call themselves the Order of Ethiopia. And when the um, Anglican Church became heretical and, and faithful m people among this movement separated from that due to various issues, they, they changed their name to the Kosa translation of that which is Umziwaz Ethiopia, which means Order of Ethiopia in Kosa. That's what that is. And they have a, a prayer book, which is a Kosa translation of the, of the South African prayer book. So it's just a book, Common Prayer, in, in Kosa. And their liturgies are that way, although they kind of mix it. They can say, so they both they speak English and the Kosa. So someone, a celebrant might say, the Lord be with you, and they'll respond in the other language. And uh, so there's kind of a mix of that. And what we learned from them, I learned a lot from them, we'll talk more about that, but one, one thing for today's purposes is, is pertains to worship. Um, we participated in, in a few liturgies 
among the, the, the Umzi, Wazi, T.O.P. had two Eucharistic liturgies, one including the ordination of two deacons and one with the ordination of a priest. Uh, these liturgies were about roughly four hours in length, which, you know, you're all... So we didn't learn that we should make our liturgies four hours, just so you can, you can, you can rest assured. Uh, but, um, and, and, and they follow their prayer book. They're made longer, it seems, by, by three things. One, they sing a lot more, because they sing a lot better than we do. <laughs> when, when, <laughs> they have a, a hymn before the sermon, a hymn after the sermon, and it's sort of an African rhythmic melody. Um, and you know, we, we didn't very often know what they were singing uh, but we thought it was very moving, and, and so it was, it's not like, so we think, you know, sing more, we think, you know, Northern Europeans making a brave attempt at a couple more hymns, which can be painful for them, but actually works pretty well. Um, so they, they sing more. The, it seems like the Kosa translation, it, somehow it takes more Kosa words to translate an English word. So like we were praying along in the prayer book and prayed the same prayer, when I was done, they seemed to have a lot more time to go, and it was seen to be the same. So there was that. And they talked more freely. I preached at one liturgy, and then later on they had someone else come up. And it's a lot more free-flowing and kind of timeless. So it kind of goes on, and it sort of starts at a certain time. We were told it was going to start at 9 o'clock one day. We rushed over there to find out. You know, it was, it was going you know, to start pretty soon, and the bishop wasn't really there yet. And, you know, and, and, and didn't really... Uh, uh, so, so there was kind of timelessness to it. We, it was also kind of funny because you have this thing that there's cell phones. Everyone, I mean, they're going off in the service, and, and then when the ordination guys put the sons out at the altar, kind of taking pictures, and I was going, it was just kind of different that way. So that's, I don't think we should do that. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but um, what we learned though in, is 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 in the longer liturgies. When they, 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 are, they are very devoted worshipers. When they sing, they sing wholeheartedly. And when they pray, they pray wholeheartedly. And they're, one, one, of the, one of the things about it, clearly there's no real concern that we fit it into some envelope that works well with brunch. You know, they don't start their Sunday saying, okay, I've got the ball game, I've got brunch, I've got the dinner plans. Wh- which liturgy do I want to fit in? How do I want to fit God into the day? And so I, I think it, we can learn that from them, that when we come to worship God, we should give ourselves wholly to God, and we wouldn't, shouldn't be as concerned how it fits. And we should adjust other things to make room for the worship of God. And when we're here, we should give ourselves wholeheartedly to it. I know one thing I do when I, I try to remember when I've been literature, is always take my watch off. I recommend you do that too. Don't look with time. You're, you're into, we enter and turn is timeless. And, and contrary to them, I'd leave my phone in the car. Unless you're an emergency service technician and someone's going to die, and if they don't call you, they're going to die, the world can do without you for an hour and a half or two hours if it happened to have something special going on. I, so we learned that. I, I, we, should, we, should, we should devote ourselves to worship, not make that fit. That's connected to the parable of Good Samaritan, loving God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind doesn't mean seeing I can fit into the rest of your schedule. I, I, I learned that for myself, too. Um, we learned a lot more from them, but that's, that's for today. Over in the Western Cape, that's where Bishop Allen, who, who, who joined us a while back and preached a sermon that made many of us cry about how much God loved us. Uh, remember Bishop Allen. Um, he has brought into his diocese some very compelling people. And it dawned on me, just as I began to think about what to say, um, 
that Africa has, the racial divisions are a little bit different, we discovered. They have native blacks, of which the Kosa are a tribe. Um, they have what they call colored, which is like mixed race uh, native blacks who, inter who intermarried and with the, or, or sometimes breeding happens without marriage there, we discovered, um, uh, it, uh, with, with, the, with white settlers. They're called colored, and they're looked down upon a little bit by the native blacks. And of course, you have white people. And um, it's interesting. We have a little bit of everything. We have the Kosa, who are native. We have uh, Bishop Allen, who's you know, white. We have two people I want to tell you about, Mama Miriam, who's a Kosa woman, runs an orphanage. We have an Ethiopian refugee named Father Thomas. So our church kind of consists of all these. And we have another Father Mike who's colored. Although, if you look at Father Mike, he looks like a little Irishman. So I didn't get that, that he, he just, that's what he looks like. But So Bishop Allen's gathered these people together. And I want to talk about uh, three of them uh, to make a, a point, And we'll, like I said, we'll talk more about it in the weeks ahead. Um, we met Father Thomas, who's an Ethiopian refugee. People are fleeing Ethiopian political turmoil there. <clears throat> going to South Africa to look for opportunity and jobs. And uh, so he's done this. He'd gone there. He'd taken on various work. He'd become kind of successful. He was a pretty astute businessman and, and through connection with uh, Bishop Allen, studied and became a priest. And he oversees a refugee community of about, Allen was about 400? Yeah, about 400 people. And one of the things he's done with some of these refugees, he's put them up and he's set up shops for them. Now, shops and, and all our churches are sort of, at least people live in the townships, which are very poor areas consisting of sh sometimes, you know, decently built houses, sometimes shacks, but, but very poor areas. And a shop is not a, it's not what you'd see across the way. It's not a little uh, mall storefront. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a container you'd see, typically a container you'd see on a ship in Long Beach port with a window heavily barred and stocked with um, eggs and milk and Coke and Fanta and bread and candy and bananas and some other things that aren't very healthy. They don't eat very well. They drink way too much Coke. Um, and so he set me up in these shops and these, the people he set up, the, the immigrants, um, they're, they're somewhat sometimes resented by the people who are there because, they're, because of their presence, but they've been persecuted by Somali uh, refugees who were also uh, shops, who were, um, who, who really, I think, are the best to call them is, are Muslim terrorists. And, and, and uh, 16 of Thomas's refugee people have been murdered in the last couple of years, including a, a few shop owners. Um, uh, Bishop Allen says that 10% that of all the income from the Somali and other shops and businesses in South Africa go to fund al-Shabaaz, it's very organized. And so they, they say essentially have seen some of the shops that Thomas has set people up in and just they, the way they take care of it is they, they frighten them away and attack them and, and, and try to make them out of the business. Uh, Father Thomas oversees this community. He, 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 and he's got a, a profound ministry. He, he's trying to find some of these people he wants to get resettled in the States. They have relatives here. Um, some he wants to, he'd like to move out of the shops. He'd like to buy maybe a, 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 a farm of some sort where they could raise um, maybe some chickens and things like that. We learned some other things about that. I'll tell people afterwards about chicken purchase in South Africa. Um, uh, but that, that's not, and, and so he, he oversees this community as an extremely compelling person. And, and he's, he's, 
he, he throws his life into it. We got to meet some of these refugees. They're, they're psychologically traumatized. Most of them have been persecuted in their homeland. They come here, and now they're being attacked by guns and machetes. Father Thomas's brother got shot in Ethiopia in, in part of he's missing his arm from the elbow down. And so we'd like to work to help some of these people if we have some connections help with the refugee program here and help them find a place to, to do some work in South Africa. So Father Thomas is a very compelling uh, person we'd like to have you all know more about as we, as we move on. Um, we met uh, Mama Miriam, who's someone that, that Father Thomas met, uh, um, met, uh, met and has brought her into to the ACC and what we do. Uh, you may have read in the Trinitarian a while back about an orphanage in South Africa. It burned down, a little, little boy was killed. That was her orphanage. Um, and she runs it, she takes care of 28 kids in a very small room, maybe half the size of the nave upstairs and downstairs. Um, she was, uh, when we were there, um, she, she had bought an extra shack uh, from, from one of these Somalis because she had no more room. She, she had to pay, it was like 7,500 rand, and she owed the money the Wednesday. And, and it was, again, so on behalf of all you, I gave her the money. <laughs> Went to the bank, and, and, and uh, we did that for her. So she takes care of that. She has a very compelling story, though. She, when she was um, a younger girl, she lived on the other side of the Cape, in the Eastern Cape, and one day a policeman came to her door with his gun drawn, uh, Kim House, and raped her. Justice really doesn't happen over there quite like it happens here. Um, and she, um, she says uh, as a result of that rape, she became pregnant. Uh, she says she hid under the bed for several months and, and endured several years of, of kind of recovery and trauma. Uh, she said, but then uh, through prayer, she said God spoke to her and God gave her the grace to forgive. Um, and she moved over to the Western Cape and God spoke to her and told her that he wanted her to, to, to start an orphanage, take care of the young kids. And um, if you met, met her, I hope some of you will, we hope to set up the ability to do Skype with her and so hopefully we can have opportunities for her to talk and so you get a chance to meet her. But she's, um, she's a very joyful and cheerful Christian. And, and I, I know she, she made us, we, when we met her in her home, she made us cry several times, walking around going, wow, look what she's doing here. She ha and she has them doing things, the kids doing things that we wanted to see. We hope that, that I, I hope as, as being part of the mission society that I'm heading now to see that if she has a kid sewing uh, clothes, producing things, she's organized, um, she has Bible studies, she's teaching computer skills. Uh, Deacon Bob uh, bought a computer for them uh, to do and we'd like to do more stuff like that. She's organized the kids into soccer. She has 80 kids playing soccer help get some of the young kids off the street. Uh, big problem. We talk about men's ministry a lot. There's big need for that there. And um, so she's doing all these kinds of things. And so we, she's a woman we want to be in touch with regularly and, and support and, and get to know better. So she's, she's part of what we learned there. We learned of, of some work being done by someone to really make an impact. Um, a third person we learned about was Father Mike, who is the, the, the colored Again, he looks like a, an Irishman, but there he's mixed race. And he works among the poorest of the poor people. He goes around to the townships, and he took us around to all his townships that he visits. Um, and some are, you know, some are you know, just, just kind of poor and run down, and yet it, that there's a sense of normality, and some are just really filthy and 
and you wonder how one can live there. He took us down one road where there was a, a cement factory and then you went past it and up behind the cement factory, there was about six people, seven people living in just makeshift huts with water all over. And, and uh, he goes back there regularly and brings food. He picks um, a couple of those people up and brings them to church. When we were there, he was chiding one woman because she hadn't been to church and what was up with that. And, and he has, he's, a, he's tenacious and pugnacious, but he goes around. He goes to the, um, he, we were at dinner with, the, with Bishop Allen's congregation. We were talking where he went that day, and a lot of his congregation said, I wouldn't go there. He took us, there, there's the worst, uh, one of the worst townships has gangs. One of them are called the Americans, not because they have any Americans, but they're just a name adopted by sort of vicious native people and there's a lot of killing, a lot of drug use and stuff like that. They look like projects, you know, in, a, in an inner city here. So he goes around and cares for the poorest of the poor. A lot of the, um, um, the, the emergency service people, ambulances and such, won't go into some of those areas. So when somebody is um, sick, he, he acts as an ambulance. He has a pickup truck. He goes in there and sometimes he acts as a hearse. He goes and gets dead bodies because other people won't go there either. So we met three very compelling people in, in the Western Cape. We met uh, Father Thomas, we met um, Mama Miriam, and we met uh, Father Mike. Uh, and these are the ACC at work in, in, in the Western Cape. And, and we were compelled, these people we want to get to know and support their ministry. Um, our application of the parable of Good Samaritan uh, is, is that in, in, the, in the parable, uh, the guy wants to, wants to uh, you know, what he has to do to be saved. And, and Jesus says, well, what's the law say? And the, the, the lawyer who asked the question recites the summary of the law, which we do every week. The love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then Jesus says, well, okay, go do it. And the guy, and the guy he, he doesn't really want to love, he wants to justify himself. So he says, who's my neighbor? And causes Jesus to tell the parable uh, of a good Samaritan who, who, who loves uh, the, the wounded man by the roadside. And the conclusion is, you know, that the question Jesus asks, who, you know, who, who was a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but, but who was a neighbor to the person? And tells the, the guy to go and do likewise. The theology of our lessons this morning is not that if we try hard to love God and love our neighbor, we will be saved. It's somewhat a little different than that. It, it's, it tells us, our, our epistle tells us that there's nothing we can really do to be saved. Uh, Christ has saved us. He's fulfilled the law for us, and in him we are justified. But being justified in him, uh, that, that then frees us to love. We, we aim to fulfill the law, to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, love our neighbors, ourselves, not because if we do that, God will like us and save us. We do it because God has already shown he loves us. He already has saved us. And now we're free to love. We're free to, to do the things he calls us to do in our, in our lives and ministry. And so when we go to South Africa, we wonder, well, where's the, where's the ACC? We, sometimes we think institutionally. And the church always exists not in an institution, but exists in people. We saw it in South Africa in some very compelling people. And it's something to always remember when we think of, of the church is the church consists of people. Um, and if people come to us, I guess the challenge I put before us, if people visited us from somewhere and want to know what's, what's the church doing here, 
what would their stories be about us? What, what are we doing? How do we love God and love our neighbor? Our, from, you know, my first point was to love God fully in worship, not to measure that out amongst the routine stuff, but to give ourselves fully in worship. And then to consider what are our gifts? What are we being called to do? Um, we, we have a lot more stuff than people that we visited in South Africa have. But also, we also saw that hopelessness looks about the same whether you have too much money or not enough of it. And, and I think one thing I realized about our problems here is that there's not any less hopelessness. It's just better hidden. You can hide hopelessness behind a nice house more easily than you can in a township, which unfortunately means you can't get at it so easily. In the township, there, there's the person you can talk to them. Here, you may never get to them. They're, you know, they're at the vacation home. They're at the this. They're at the that. Um, but nonetheless, we're called. We're called to love. And so, how do we? How do we? How are we reaching out? How are we? How are we being a neighbor? What are our gifts? And always remember that I think that the big error of our culture is we. we is that it aims at money? People say, "What do you want to do?" And People think about how I'm going to make money to live. And I think what, we, what, what we're taught in the, in the New Testament is that's the wrong question. It's what are you called to do? And yes, you have to make money, and you may, be, you may be successful at what you do, and that's a good thing. Even that, though, needs to work for something beyond yourself. One of the things I, I realized is, so how, what's the combination, the connection between a relatively comfortable church like ours in Newport Beach and poor people, well, one of the reasons that I can go there and take Alan and Bob as a part of a church now that's grown to a place where we can support some of that. We must use what God has given us for, to help others. If we use what God has given us to be simply self-focused, to buy another home, to buy another thing, to buy another comfort for ourselves, it's death, it's hopelessness, there's nothing in that. But if we invest ourselves and others with what God has given us, we, we find a sense of meaning and purpose and hope. And as we invest ourselves in others, they get hope as well. So the question to ask, who, who, uh, you know, who is a neighbor? Um, are we being a neighbor in our lives? What, are, what, what gifts have you been given? It doesn't mean you have to be a, a formal uh, missionary, go into ministry. The fact is that where you work, if you have a life, you interact with people, you're in touch with people that maybe nobody else is in touch with if you're just a formal church person, but that's the people you're supposed to reach out to and find those needs and connect to, what can you do with them? Um, so the exhortation is, is you know, so, so we, we're justified by Christ, but having been justified now, we're called to love God fully, to devote ourselves and worship, and to be a neighbor to those we see who've, who've been wounded by life in this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.